We're in week number three of a series on stewardship this month that I've called Open-Handed, the Freedom of Living Generously. If you've been tracking with us, you'll know that over the last couple of weeks, we've been just talking again about God's perspective on finances, possessions, resources, time, all of it, and how the way of the world seems to be closed-handed, closed-fisted, to take what's mine, hold on to it because you can't lose anything. And yet we sense God's and we see God's called us through the scripture to be people that are open-handed, who lay out before God all that's his anyway, that everything comes from God, everything belongs to God, everything's dispersed by God. And as stewards, people who are managers of God's resources, we always have the intent and the goals of the owner in mind to glorify and bless him with the resources he's entrusted us to manage. We've learned over the last couple of weeks that whether we like it or not, we're all stewards. No one's an owner because everything belongs to God. So the question of scripture, will we be wise stewards or foolish stewards? We believe that over these last couple of weeks, we are already seeing a work of God in this body, both here in this room and those joining us online, as we respond to the generous invitations of Jesus to follow him. This weekend, we get to look at an amazing parable, a parable with a twist that Jesus tells. But before that, um, you know, there are so many perspectives on giving and generosity. Some of you have been telling me your stories over the last number of weeks. So many perspectives on giving, generosity, what counts, what doesn't. You know, one common view of giving around churches, you know, people come to church and basically the posture is my money is my money and that preacher or pastor or leader, whoever, are trying to get as much of my money as they can. And so I'm suspicious and I'm going to hold back a little bit before giving. You know, a second perspective is, well, how much counts? I mean, when do I really cross the threshold from just giving a little to being fully generous? When do I cross the line into true generosity? Is it a percentage thing? Is it an amount? Like, what's God really looking for? Last weekend, we even talked about the perspective of compassion fatigue, that we see generosity as a burden to carry. We see it as a weight, and it's like, you know, there's so many needs, so many things that I'm supposed to be giving towards. How do I even manage? And so we retreat, maybe. You know, another, another perspective on giving, you know, as we approach generosity, it's to say, I would love to be generous, but at the end of the day, I don't want to be left lacking. I mean, if I really give the way God, I think, is maybe asking me to with my time, my resources, my possessions, I mean, what if I end up with not enough? And then I'm out looking, <laughs> looking for someone to be generous to me. We're going to talk more about that next weekend, the what ifs. Of generosity. You have all of these perspectives when it comes to giving, generosity, and living open-handed. And these tensions, you have multiple of them going on at the same time, can lead to feeling burdened and this temptation to pull back and just do nothing. To drift into this place of apathy where it's, you know what, just survive financially, survive with the time I have, and get through to a better time. Someday, some way, things are going to get better, and then I'll be generous. Someday, some way, I'll have more time, and then I'll invest it. It just never, ever works that way. Apathy, once it sets in, has this tendency to just stay and stay and stay. But I think this morning, if we can capture God's view on what generosity means and adopt his view, his perspective, how he he sees our money, our possessions, our time, I think it has the opportunity, the potential to not only radically change our lives, but when we get this right, when we start adopting a vision for how God sees our stuff, I think it leads to, inevitably, countless lives all over the world being transformed forever. I think it's that big of a deal. If you have your Bibles, would you turn to Luke chapter 16? 
Luke chapter 16. We're going to be in the first 13 verses. The scriptures are going to be coming up on the screens. You can share a Bible with the person next to you. Just snuggle in tight. Introduce yourself first before you snuggle in. You can share a Bible. It'll be up on the screen. Uh, If you want to know where Luke is and you're not sure about where to find it in the Bible, feel free. Go to the table of contents. Find the name Luke. Go to the big number 16. That's the chapter. And the small little numbers are the verses. And that's how you navigate your way through the Bible. By book, by chapter, and by verse. So we're in Luke chapter 16, verses 1 to 13. Amazing thing about this. This is one of the rare occasions. It doesn't happen often. Where Jesus tells a parable. He tells a story. And then explains what the parable means. Oftentimes, Jesus will tell a parable. And he'll kind of land this story on, on the group that's with him, on his followers. And he'll come to the end of the story, and there's this collective, huh? Kind of with everybody. What what did he just say? Someone once described Jesus' parables as a ticking time bomb spiritually. That Jesus would tell the story, it would kind of lay there, everybody's scratching their heads. And like the next day at lunch, all of a sudden you wake up to this incredible thing that Jesus was teaching about. The word parable is actually a word that just means to throw alongside. That's what the word parable means. It's kind of like, as you're going about your life, Jesus is just going to take this profound thing about God's kingdom and life with him and just kind of toss it beside you and have you kind of deal with it at some point. And that's Jesus' parables. These stories that are going to fall alongside life and over time kind of get into us and start reading our hearts and drawing out the truth of God's kingdom that we need to be paying attention to. As we come into Luke 16, you have to know that Jesus is talking to a particular group of people. If you were to go back, you don't have to do this now, but if you were to go back to the beginning of chapter 15, it says that gathering around Jesus, not only were his disciples, but there were sinners and tax collectors. And they're all pressing into Jesus to hear about life with God. And that is there even a possibility that life with God is open to someone like me? But it also says that among the disciples and the sinners and the tax collectors, there's Pharisees and religious people. And they're not there to really press into Jesus and find out more about God's kingdom. They're there with suspicious minds, wondering who is this person? Can he be trusted? Should we hate him? Should we follow him? What what should we do with this person? And so there's this very eclectic group of people gathering around Jesus. You have those pressing in for more and those standing back saying, who is this man? And should we be threatened by him? Through chapter 15, Jesus goes on to tell three stories that always involve lost things and found things. And he's describing to this eclectic group of people, his disciples, sinners, tax collectors, Pharisees, religious people, about life with God and what it's really like. What his perspective on life in the kingdom is like. So here this group is sitting around. They're hearing Jesus' stories. And Jesus comes in to tell this story. He just continues with the parables in Luke chapter 16. And it says that after this parable... After Jesus tells this story, it says the religious people sneered at Jesus. You know what it is to sneer at someone? I mean, you can't even say the word without your face turning like you've just sucked on a lemon. Like, it's just this this sneering, this anger, this hatred. It says Jesus told this story, and the religious people in the group sneered at Jesus because they loved their money so much. They wanted to kill him. That was their reaction. So this is not this kind of lighthearted little story with a moral at the end. Jesus' goal in this parable is to help us see our stuff the way God sees it. And in that, have our attitude toward generosity entirely transformed. And I'm going to tell you, by the end of this, we're either going to be an open-handed people, or we're going to be sneering at Jesus, saying, how dare you talk to me that way? It's going to be one or two ways. 
So let's head into this incredible story found in Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 1. It says this. So Jesus told his disciples, he's primarily talking to his disciples, but he knows that there's this crowd, sinners, tax collectors, religious people, all listening. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, the owner called in the manager, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. So let's set up the story here. Jesus says there's this landowner. Now, this would have been very common in Jesus' day. There was these wealthy landowners that wouldn't just own one piece of property. They would own multiple pieces of property. And different agricultural crops and and livestock would be grown depending on the kind of land they had. And the landowner, essentially, his whole life was going property to property to see how his investments were doing. And each landowner would have a manager for each property. So every so often, these wealthy landowners would come around and they'd sit down with one of their managers at that property and say, okay, give me an account. How's it going? How's the investment working? Those that owe me, are they paying? Are we, are we keeping above water here? Is there a crop that's not working? Well, one way or another, Jesus says in this story, you have this wealthy landowner and he hears, maybe through other workers, that one of his managers has been acting wastefully. He's been slothful. He's been lazy. He hasn't really been paying attention to the master's investment. So word comes to the owner that there's been this manager that's been wasteful. And he calls him in and says this. Hey, manager, um, I've got word of the fact and I have enough evidence to back this up that you've been wasteful with my possessions, with my money, with my resources. And so here's the deal. You're fired. Uh, You're now out of a job. But before you go... I need you to do something for me before I let you leave because I could have you arrested before I let you leave. I need a full accounting of what's gone on here. I need you to give me a sense of what's really happened so that I know when I install a new manager, we're operating out of a sense of what's really happened. That's the story. Verse three says the manager then said to himself, what shall I do now? So stick with that phrase for a second. What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. And then he has this moment. Verse 4, the light bulb comes on. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here in the next few moments, people will welcome me into their houses. I'm going to be looked after. What should I do now? What should I do now? I've been, I've been found out. I've been exposed. And I cannot lose this job. I am losing this job, but I need this job. And I don't want to go dig ditches. I mean, I have soft white lily hands of an accountant or a pastor. You know, I can't grab a shovel and do stuff like that. I can't do manual labor. That's not my thing. And and, and I can't beg. I mean, I'm just too proud to beg, right? There's a song that goes like that. Some of you have that song in your head going right now. He says, what am I supposed to do? He says, what shall I do now? And there's the urgency. You got to capture the urgency of the story. This is his moment of urgency. This manager looks into the future and realizes he has two things going for him. Despite the fact that he's just been fired. He realizes he has these two things going for him. He has a little bit of time and he has a little bit of opportunity to get himself looked after. He figures out that he needs to leverage both, both time and opportunity to ensure that he's looked after when he's out of a job. And he has this idea He says, listen, I've got time and I've got opportunity. What should I do now? 
If I've got, if I have a little bit of time, it's limited, and I've got a little bit of opportunity, and it's limited, what can I do to maximize, to leverage the little bit of time and little bit of opportunity I have to make sure I'm looked after? Let's see what he does. Verse 5. This manager called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, he kind of whispers it, take your bill, sit down quickly. Take your bill, sit down quickly, make it 450. Really? Yeah, just do it. Just do it quick. Don't worry about it. Verse 7. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. And he told them, take your bill and make it 800. Just pause there. With a little bit of time and a little bit of opportunity and all of a sudden this sense of urgency, he's gone from the wasteful manager to the urgent manager because now time is tight. Opportunity is limited. And so what does he do? He says, I know people that owe my master stuff and I need to be looked after someday. So here's what I'm going to do. He calls in one of the debtors and says, hey, I know you're not in good, good standing with my master. A thousand things of olive oil. I mean, you got to pay that back. I know I, it's just tight right now. It, it's, you know, bad economy, all these sorts of things, hard times. Manager says, you know what? I got this. I'm here to help you. So you know what? Just take your bill and reduce it. Really? Yeah, you know what? Just cut it in half. It's okay. Master won't mind one bit. Really? Yeah, don't worry about it. It's fine. Just, just sign off on this. Hey, you know what? Thank you. You know what? If you ever need anything, you just ask. And the manager replies, thank you. I will. Just hang on to that thought. Calls in the second one. What's your story? I, I'm in debt and I can't pay it back. You know what? Just reduce it. What's affordable for you? Well, about this much. You know what? That's your new bill. Master won't mind. Really? Absolutely. Are you sure about this? No question whatsoever. Hey, thank you. You know what? If you ever need anything, you just let me know. Don't worry. I will. And here's the tension point. What's Jesus' lesson going to be? I mean, where's he going on the moral of the story? What kind of truth is Jesus going to draw out? Look at the first part of verse 8. Master finds out about it. The master commended the dishonest manager because he'd acted shrewdly. You want to talk about the line that nobody saw coming? I mean, all of Jesus here is right now go, wait, wait a minute. The scoundrel's getting praised. He's getting commended. What is that about? The manager is commend. The manager is commended. You see that the manager commended the dishonest manager. There's another translation that says he, he commended the dishonest rascal. That's really the actual translation. It's like, well done. You, know, you have this owner sitting with this manager and he says, you know what? You ripped me off, but I got to hand it to you. You pulled a fast and I respect that. You showed a lot of insight, you big jerk. Nice work. Now get out of here. You're still fired, but I appreciate your ingenuity. I saw the urgency in you, maybe for the first time. Well done. You know, you recognized that you had a little bit of time and a little bit of opportunity and you leveraged both. I commend you for that. Now at this point, Jesus has everybody's attention in the crowd. The dishonest scoundrel gets commended by the master. This is not where we thought this was going. And so now Jesus pulls out of the parable and makes this astonishing statement. Look at verse, the second half of verse 8. He says, For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. He's saying to his followers, Look, there is something you can learn. This is Jesus' big twist in the story. 
He says, look, there's something you can learn from how the people of this world manage their resources. Jesus is saying the people of this world. And when he, when he says the people of this world, he's talking about anybody who just simply lives with the temporal in mind, where everything is temporal. The people who have no vision of eternity. He says the people that live in that reality are more shrewd or savvy with their resources than followers of Jesus are, he's saying, or are people of light. He says, why? Because they live with this urgency of time and opportunity. He says there's something that happens sometimes, maybe in his followers and people that expand their way of eternity, that we kind of lose sight of the little bit of time and the little bit of opportunity. And he says we have something to learn from a dishonest scoundrel who in the urgency of time and opportunity made a move that advantaged himself. That's what Jesus is saying. Just look around. Look at the urgency with which people are working who have no sense of eternity, who have no vision for what's to come. And yet with the time and opportunity they have, they're leveraging both to make an impact. Now, it's selfish and it's self-centered, but man, they're using both. And Jesus says, there is something that you people of light, you've got to capture in this. And Jesus now, coming out of the story, begin to, begins to explain what everything means. In the next three verses, Jesus says, I'm going to give you heaven's perspective, God's perspective, my perspective, Jesus says, on your money and possessions. Because we need to up the urgency on time and opportunity, not for our selfish gain, but for the blessing of God and others. And so he goes like this. Here's three things that Jesus points out. Look at verse 9. He says, I tell you, now he's speaking to his followers, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now that word worldly wealth, use worldly wealth. Some of you, if you're ever in the King James Bible, you'll see this phrase called unrighteous mammon. Anyone heard of unrighteous mammon before? few of you. That's what it's saying. And unrighteous mammon, that word mammon means more than money. It means stuff. It means everything you've got, everything you've got under your stewardship. Your time, your resources, your influence, everything. Just use everything you've got, Jesus said. God says, or Jesus says, use stuff for God. Right now, use unrighteous mammon. Use all your stuff in a certain way so that someday people are going to welcome you into eternal dwellings. What does that mean? It means this, first of all, that God sees our stuff as a tool for transforming lives. Everything that we're stewarding, God sees as a tool for transforming lives. Now, when Jesus says, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, Jesus is not saying be manipulative with your stuff. He's, be, he's essentially saying this. You know what? If you want to be friendly with people, don't be tight and don't be cheap. Be open-handed. Be generous. In that, you create a sense of generosity and kindness around you. People will want to be around you because you're nice and you're kind and you're generous. So he's not saying use this unrighteous man and use your stuff to manipulate people into relationship. He's saying, no, be open-handed, be generous. And in that, you find yourself among people who like you and you like them. But here's what that means. Jesus is saying... Everything you have is a tool for transforming lives. He says it right there. He says, use your stuff. Use your stuff in a certain way to build relationships, to use for others, so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Here's what Jesus is saying. Somehow, this is a miracle. Somehow, God takes our stuff, which is here today and gone tomorrow, and when we choose generosity... God uses it to change lives forever. That means your home, your vehicle, your kitchen table, your time, anything, 
anything we have that God's put under our control for now, we can use our stuff and get it into circulation for the kingdom. And when we do, it becomes a a tool of transformation in changing people's lives. You know what I think is one of the most powerful kingdom tools that we have in our community? Kitchen tables. Our tables. I mean, it's, it's a table. We bought it. We, you know, we set it in the dining room or kitchen area. And so often it's kind of just for our, my people, the people I'm with, my family. But Jesus is saying, what if you started to see your kitchen table as a tool for the transformation of lives, where your story gets told, where you pray for people, where you invest in people, you care for the needy, you feed those who don't have enough. And that table, which really is here today, gone tomorrow, it's all going to burn up anyway. That God, when we put that into God's hands and say, God, use us as a tool, he uses that table to transform people's lives forever. It's amazing. Jesus even says, use your worldly wealth. Use the stuff you have so that you're welcomed into eternal dwellings. I want to tell you, folks, here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, someday you're going to step from this reality into the next. We're going to walk into heaven. And Jesus is saying, he's not making this up, and he doesn't just like the sound of his own voice. He really means what he says. That when we get to heaven, you're going to walk into that new reality. And he says, there are going to be people there that welcome you into heaven and say, thank you. We say, thank you for what? You used your table to hear my story. And because of that, I'm here today. You used your vehicle to give me a ride. And you asked how it was with my soul. And it was one thing on the journey of my journey to Christ. You opened your home. You gave generously. You supported that worker to go overseas. And because of your investment, I'm here to welcome you into eternal dwellings and say thank you for using your stuff as a tool for transformation. What would it be like to walk into heaven and have a crowd of people kind of slow clapping you into glory simply because of how you used your stuff? It's here today and gone tomorrow. I remember when I was in grade nine, uh, my family and I uh, were living in Calgary at the time. We were there for a short time. My dad was in a job in Calgary for just a short bit. We were part of a church, First Alliance Church in Calgary. And there at this time, like I said, I was in grade nine. So so many years ago, like 1988, 89 is when I was there. Now you know how old I am. Um, There was a buzz in the city of Calgary in the fall of 88 and into 89. And uh, because something had happened that summer, Wayne Gretzky had been traded from the Oilers to the L.A. Kings. Anyone, we all know who Wayne Gretzky is, right? Greatest hockey player ever, played for the greatest team ever, his first team, right? We all know that, Edmonton Oilers. So we're in Calgary. Wayne Gretzky had been traded to the Los Angeles Kings, and he was coming back to play in Calgary for the first time in an L.A. Kings uniform. Blah, but there we were. You know, here he is, he's going to come to Calgary. My friends and I are standing at church on that Sunday, it's going to be a Sunday night game. I'll never forget it. And my f- three friends and I were buzzing about the fact that, can you believe Wayne Gretzky's kind of breathing the same air in our city that we are right now? I mean, he's somewhere around us right now. We're talking about this game, how we're going to watch it and everything else like that. This gentleman walks up to us. Uh, he was a man who had been very, very well uh, in, in worldly wealth, but loved Jesus, all these sorts of things. He comes up to us. He's an older man, probably 60 at the time, late 50s, early 60s. And he... Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Someone got it. Thank you. I'm making age jokes today. Um, he walks up to us and he says, uh, hey, boys, how are you doing? We say, hello, sir. He says, uh, hey, you guys heard that Gretzky's in town? Like, ah, uh, yeah, we have. We're just talking about that. And he says, um, hey, I've got access to something at the Saddle Dome where the Calgary Flames play. I've got a private box. And um, 
There's lots of people that I could invite to this game. It's the big game of the year. I'm wondering if you four boys would want to come with me as my guests. And we're like, yeah, absolutely. Sure, that'd be great. He says, well, let me ask your parents. Like, no, no, don't ask our parents. We're good. <clears throat> Just, we're in. And he says, okay, I'm going to pick you up. I'm going to have someone. He actually had someone come around and pick us up from our home. He says, you meet me at the stadium. And uh, I want you as my guests at this private box. So I remember uh, we walk into the saddle dome and we went through an entrance that I'd never been in that entrance before and never was again. But we go up this private elevator, all these sorts of things. And this gentleman, he just passed away a few years ago now. He's stayed in touch a little bit. Um, this gentleman's waiting to welcome us into eternal dwellings. Not really. He's welcoming us into his, uh, into his private box. And um, people in black jackets and the white shirts and they're calling me sir and I'm grade nine. Anyways, we sit down to watch the game. And we're getting served wings on platters of silver and all these sorts of things. And we watched Gretzky score like 12 goals in the first two periods or something like that. It was in between the second and third period. We're having the time of our lives. And this man says, hey, hey boys, I want to tell you about something. And he called us back into the little apartment area behind the seats. And he says, I want to tell you why I invited you here today. He says, I could have invited anybody in the city. Everybody wanted to be here today for this game to see Gretzky. But I invited you, you four boys. Because I want to tell you a story. And he took the time between the second and third period before the game got going again. He just told us his testimony of where he started and where he came from. And I remember when he said, you guys might look around this space and think it's so impressive and everything else. But he said to us, you know, all this goes away someday. The most important decision you can ever make isn't about hockey. It's not about sports, not about girls or anything else like that. This is the most important decision you make is to set your feet on a path towards Jesus or away from Jesus. And you can do that today. You know, at that time in my life, this man had no idea what was going on in my heart as a grade nine kid. But at that point in my life, I was on the fence with Jesus with about everything. You know, I, I understood the church deal and I understood school and I was just conflicted in my heart about faith. And when this man took the time to say on the biggest night of the year in Calgary at that time, I'm going to take four grade nine boys and simply tell them, my, I'm going to get them in an environment where I can tell them my story and point them towards Jesus. And I still look back to that night. I don't even remember what Gretzky scored. Honestly, I don't. But I do remember this. I remember this gentleman taking something, using it as a, as a tool, and my life got transformed forever. I'm where I am today because of one man. He never knew inevitably where I ended up. I feel like where I am with God is because people like him saw his stuff as a tool, not to glorify himself, but to point people to Jesus. And that's true for all of us, whether we've got a private box at the ACC or a beautiful car, whatever else, whatever you have. God says, I see everything you have as a tool and you can use it. You can use it so that someday in how the investment of your resources go, people will be there to welcome you into eternal dwelling and say, thank you for using your stuff. I'm with Jesus forever simply because you gave in a particular way. Here's the second thing, Luke 6, 16, verse 10. God not only sees our stuff as a tool, it says this, verse 10, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you've been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, so if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Here's what Jesus is saying. 
God doesn't just see our stuff as a tool for transforming lives. He sees it as a window into our hearts. All of our stuff is not just a tool. All of our stuff is also a window. I mean, if you want to know where my values lie, what's really important to me, just look at my bank statement. Look at my visa statement. And you'll see what's important to me. It's a window into my heart. And God's invitation is to use the time and opportunity we have to leverage the little we have now in preparation for the life to come. You see, what Jesus is doing here, in these two verses, he's not saying some have more, some have less, whatever else. The comment he's making, he says, it's not what you have. It's not what you have, big or little. Because on this side of eternity, Jesus is lifting the vision for eternity here. He's saying whatever you receive here, whether it's the billionaire or the person on $2 a day, all of that in the light of eternity is little. It's all little compared to what's to come. So how you use it is what matters. It's not what you've been given. We're not, we're not judged on what we were given and say, well, you had a lot, so you, know, you have to do more, you're little, you have to do less, whatever else. Jesus is saying right here, it's not about what you're given. From eternity's perspective, the greatness is to come. The big is yet to come. And Jesus is saying, it's not about what you have and whether you assess it as big or little. It's how you use it. It's an identifier of what's going on in your heart, which leads us right into the third thing. In verse 13, it says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So God sees our tool. God sees our money as a tool for transforming lives. He sees our stuff as a window into our hearts. And then God sees how we use our stuff as a sign of ownership or a trademark. Because he says you can't serve both God and stuff. You know, it's amazing. You almost expect Jesus to say you can't serve two masters. You can't serve both God and like the devil or God and the evil one. But he says, no, you can't serve both God and stuff. You want to know what really grips your heart on ownership? In one sense, it's easy to just resist the overtly evil, dark stuff of the world. You know what's more subtle? Is when you get owned by stuff. He says it can happen. He says you can't serve both. You can't sit on the fence on this one and say, well, I serve God sometimes, but I'm really actually serving my money and serving my stuff. That's really where my attention goes. And God says, no, no, there's no 50-50 here. It's one way or the other. You can't serve both God and be submissive to him while at the same time serving your stuff. Well, the question right now is usually this. So is it wrong to buy things? Is it a sin to make a nice purchase or take a great vacation? Some of you are really hoping after coming back from March break what the answer is in a, in a couple seconds here. You know, is it a sin to make purchases or take vacations? Not at all. And not at all. Absolutely not. That's not what Jesus' point is. But here's the thing. We will see at some point in our lives, we will come to those fork in the road moments where we are indicating with our choices if we belong to God or if we belong to our stuff. And it really comes down to this. When we feel a prompting from God's spirit towards generosity, but we resist because there's something I want for myself, it shows who I belong to. That's what Jesus is looking for. He says, who do you belong to? Who's really making the decision over your financial lives? When there's a prompting of generosity, do my people, Jesus says, is there's this resistance in their hearts because really I want something for myself. And Jesus says, then you don't, you're not with me, you're with your stuff. You're answering the call of your possessions. This cruel master called your stuff is telling you how to live your life. And you are shackled to it to the point that you can't be generous. So God says it's got to go one of the two ways. And some of us today, we're driving around in our master. Or we're living in our master. 
We are owned by something that's a cruel master that promises everything but delivers nothing. God says, if, you, if, I'm, if you're owned by me, that means the promptings of my spirit is what you listen to. It's a call to relationship. That's what this really is. What Jesus is doing here is he's calling us into a relationship where we're constantly responding to the will of the owner in relation to our stuff. How can I use it? What is it now? That very first weekend, we stood nine people up here and put some resources in their hand and said, this is an example of what it's like to say, God, how do you want me to put your resources into circulation for the kingdom? That's a relational thing. It's asking God, how do you want me to use it? You see, we want God. We think we want God to give us an amount or a percentage that we're supposed to be generous with. And then the rest is up to me. I set aside this is God's money, that percentage, but the rest is mine. I've met the mark. God's happy. No worries. But that is not the message of Jesus. He says, everything you have comes from God and everything belongs to God. Therefore, the life of true generosity is one in which we courageously follow the promptings of the Holy Spirit as what we should do with God's stuff that he's entrusted to us to manage. This is a call to relationship, not to rule following. So you can follow a law on percentages and never have your heart go with it. You can but a call to relationship, that's what Jesus is after. So I've been asked this question a um, number of times over the last couple of weeks. So if you were to ask me how much you should give or how much of your stuff should be used and available for God's kingdom purposes, I would tell you what I believe the New Testament teaches. Be fully generous and rich toward God. Well, what does that mean? How much is that? Ask him what being fully generous and rich toward him looks like. Now, some people say, Wade, you're anti-tithing. You're against tithing. I said, no, I'm not against tithing. Not at all. Your decision to tithe between you and God, again, a relational act. But if all we're doing is stopping at a percentage to follow a law, it doesn't mean your heart's in it. It's out of an obligation. There doesn't have to be love involved. But when you sit with the owner of all your stuff and say to him, what would you have me do to get all of this into circulation for your kingdom, and I will follow your promptings and meet your goals as the owner, that changes the whole conversation entirely. It's a call to a conversation and a relationship, not towards rule following. How much should we give? What does it mean to get stuff into circulation for God's kingdom? How much? Be fully generous. Enriched towards God. That's our answer. You see, we have a little bit of time and a little bit of opportunity. The question is, will I invite Jesus to transform my perspective and, and begin to see all of the resources, all of the stuff in my care as a tool, as a window, and as a sign that points people to God's glory and the blessing of the people of this world? You see, friends, there's going to come a day, and I've talked about this already, Jesus just lifts in this whole parable. He's lifting us out of a temporal into an eternal view about how things really are. There's going to come a day when we step from this life into the next, and you're going to see Jesus as he really is, and behold him, the scripture says. And for the first time, we will understand the true value of things. And I think from that perspective... When we see Jesus, when we see his kingdom in full, I think from that perspective, I think every single one of us will say, Jesus, if I knew then what I know now, I would have risked more. I would have invested more. I would have given more. I would have hoarded less, less, knowing that this, this is what was to come. You know, we don't have to wait. 
to see what it really means to be fully generous and rich toward God. This is a call to relationship today. To say, God, it's all yours. What would you have me do with it? So I can be welcomed into eternal dwellings. So that the sign of my heart points to ownership in Christ. And the window of ownership says, everything I have belongs to God. And in that, he is taking what is here today and gone tomorrow. And transforming lives forever. Would you pray with me? Worship team, would you come? We're going to take a moment. We have a couple minutes here. and just want to give you the space and time to consider what it is the Holy Spirit saying to you. You know, there was a group of people that heard this parable and their reaction was to sneer at Jesus because they loved their money so much. And Jesus knew exactly who those people belonged to. They were being owned by their stuff. And I think Jesus had compassion on them. He always has compassion on those who are in bondage to things that are cruel. So the invitation of Jesus to us, whether we're sneering in our hearts today or open and ready to respond to him, his posture towards us is mercy. His posture towards us is grace. And so I just want to give you the time and guide you through the three things we talked about in prayer. And simply this, if it's true that God sees everything we have as a tool for transforming lives, what things is God bringing to mind for you that you can put into circulation for his kingdom? Whether it be your time, a thing, a vehicle, to help, a table. What do you sense God saying to you about that? That everything is a tool for transforming lives. What if it's true that God sees all of our stuff and how we use it as a window into our hearts and who we belong to? How many of us have been griping about what we have instead of flipping the question and saying, God, with what I do have, how would you have me use it as a window into my heart? Is there anything we need to repent of just to turn from and discover God's mercy and grace? Maybe we've been gripping things a little bit too tight. And what if it's true that God sees how we use our stuff as a sign of ownership? And really the prayer of our hearts today is, God, we want to be all in for you. Which means we don't listen to any other master than you. We're not going to be owned by our money. We're not going to be owned by stuff. We're not going to be beholden to time in that way that it rules us. But God, we are fully devoted to you. And however you want us to use the stuff you've entrusted to us for your glory and the blessing of others. Our posture is yes to you because we want the whole world to see who we belong to. And while everybody madly chases the next thing, the next vacation, the next whatever, we're going to be the people that lean hard into you, God, and show in our decision-making, show in how we use our stuff, who it is we truly belong to. And God, we're reminded today of the payoff, that someday we walk into glory and see you as you are, 
And I think every single one of us will say, Jesus, if I knew now what I knew then, I would have risked more, invested more, knowing that this is what was to come. And God, I thank you that your kingdom is not just an out there someday kingdom. It's a right now kingdom. And we can live in its reality today as people in this world, but shaped and formed and transformed in the likeness of Christ. So we surrender to you again. And we do it together in Jesus' name. Amen.